Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies Watching Movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon so we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. Following the following journey into comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. We interrupt the Journey into Comics Network feed for this late-breaking edition of Poor News, featuring Andrew Poor. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Poor News. Yes, the show that covers political news. And this we're not really covering political news, but the, probably the biggest event of... Since I've been doing the show, really, the biggest thing regarding a president. Um, obviously, we had the 2016 election, which uh, took place for my time. But this, we're dealing with the passing of a president. And that is former President George H.W. Bush. This is the president that actually was president when I was born. Because I was, I was born in 1990. George Bush became president in 88. Or, well, 89 to uh, 93. So, George Bush was president. So, yeah, he was my first president. I think one of my earliest memories regarding George A.W. Bush was... If you go... It was going back. I think I was traveling with my family on a vacation. And... It was probably in the early 2000s, late 90s. I don't remember exactly when, but there was these presidential like coins, like these are like silver coins that had their face on it, and I think their term. And I remember I really wanted um, George H. W. just because I wanted the pres the one for the president when I was born, because obviously they had a lot of the older ones and some of the newer ones, but he was kind of the one I was waiting for. So I think I remember actually getting it, but the kind of the rest of that trip was kind of a little fuzzy. And I've been since since then. Since I actually became an adult, adult, going back or going since like high school forward, when I started getting more interest in presidents and politicians, I started kind of getting, finding more interest. And like the last book I read about him before he passed was the book "The Last Republicans," and I forget the author's name now, but it's about George H. W. Bush and George Bush or George W. Bush. Um, which is the obviously the second father-son presidential pair since the John Adams and John Quincy Adams. So it's been interesting. I remember I covered um, earlier this year regarding the passing of his wife, Barbara Bush. So it's been a bit of interesting. I knew what I said then was that he usually, when you've been married that long and a, your spouse passes, it's not really much longer that you're still alive. And I remember it came out recently. I think one of his granddaughters said that he didn't want to spend uh, Christmas without his wife. And he died just after Thanksgiving. So it's definitely in an interesting position. And I definitely wanted to focus on this episode of just being, uh, just talking about George H.W. Bush. And if you really want to go with more information, you want to kind of get it from a very personal but still presidential perspective, I recommend reading 41. It's by George W. Bush, and it's about his father, George H.W., and it's a pretty powerful read, and I really encourage everyone to read it. It's a, an insight that you can't really get about a pres- someone by, um, writing a biography about another president from that close proximity, because he was obviously a son writing about his father. It's a whole 
whole other animal there. But I just kind of want to jump in here. Um, kind of want to open at the close. Um, this is something I saw as I kind of was prepping this. And this is from uh, the U.S. Secret Service, who obviously anyone who knows about um, presidents is that even when they're no longer president, they still have a small Secret Service detail until they pass away. And um, up on the U.S. the U.S. Secret Service Twitter page, they put out uh, their last um, notification, and it was um, the, the U.S. Secret Service. The headline is "It was an honor," and then it's um, from USSS Bush Protective Division, sent Friday, December seventh at six o one a.m. to all personnel. Uh, subject: Final Timberwolf departure notification at o six hundred hours. Timberwolves detail concluded at 0600 hours on December 7th, 2018, with no incident to report at the George Bush Presidential Library, College Station, Texas. Godspeed, former President George W. Bush will be missed by all of us. And George W. Bush was obviously very loved by the Secret Service. There was a, a story I read a while back about um, a son or a child of one of the Secret Service agents that was assigned to his detail in his more recent years. Um, was battling cancer, and a lot of the Secret Service were going to shave their heads in solidarity, and George W. Bush did that as well, and it just kind of shows one of the nice things uh, about him. And also, a statement was put out by the White House, which is kind of a little biography. So, I'm going to read that for you guys now. Uh, George H. W. Bush, as the 41st president uh, from 1989 to 1993, brought to the White House a dedication to traditional American values and a determination to direct them toward making the United States a kinder and gentler nation in the face of a dramatically changing world. George Bush brought to the White House... Um, I guess it's the same statement. In his inaugural address, he pledged in a moment rich with promise to use America's strength as a force for good. Coming from a family with traditional, a tradition of public service, George Herbert Walker Bush felt the responsibility to make his contribution both in times of war and in peace. Born in Milton, Massachusetts on June 12, 1924, he became a student leader at Phillips Academy in Andover. On his 18th birthday, he enlisted in the Armed Air Armed Forces, the youngest pilot in the Navy, when he received his wings. He flew 58 combat missions during World War II. On one mission over the Pacific as a torpedo bomber pilot, he was shot down by Japanese anti-aircraft fire and was rescued from the waters by a U.S. submarine. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for bravery in action. Bush next turned his energies towards leading his education and raising a family. In January 1945, he married Barbara Pierce. They had six children, George Robin, or George Robin, who died as a child, John, known as Jeb, Neil, Marvin, and Dorothy. At Yale University, he excelled both in sports and in his studies. He was captain of the baseball team and a member of Phi Beta Kappa. After graduation, Bush embarked on a career in the oil industry of West Texas. Like his father, Prescott Bush, who was elected a senator from Connecticut in 1952, George became interested in public service and politics. He served two terms as a, Republic, a representative to Congress from Texas, twice he ran unsuccessfully for the Senate, then he was appointed to a series of high-level positions, ambassador to the United Nations, chairman of the Republican National Committee, chief of the U.S. Liaison's Office in the People's Republic of China, and director of the Central Intelligence Agency. In 1980, Bush campaigned for the Republican nomination for president. He lost, but was chosen as a running mate by Ronald Reagan. As vice president, Bush had responsibility in several domestic areas, including federal deregulation and anti-drug programs, and visited scores of foreign countries. 
1988, Bush won the Republican nomination for president and was Senator Dan Quayle of Indiana as his running mate. He defeated Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis in the general election. Bush faced a dramatically changing world. As the Cold War ended after 40 bitter years, the Communist Empire broke up and the Berlin Wall fell. The Soviet Union ceased to exist and a reformist president, Mikhail Gorbachev, whom Bush had supported, resigned. While Bush hailed the march of democracy and insisted on restraint in U.S. policies towards the group of new nations. In other areas of foreign policy, President Bush sent American troops into Panama to overthrow the corrupt regime of General Manuel Norregia, Norregia? I'm struggling with pronunciation tonight, who was threatening the security of the canal and the Americans living there. Norregia was brought to the United States to trial as a drug trafficker. Bush's greatest test came when Iraqi President Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, then threatened to move into Saudi Arabia. Vowing to free Kuwait, Bush rallied the United Nations, the U.S. people, and Congress, and sent 425,000 American troops. They were joined by 118,000 troops from allied nations. After weeks of air and missile bombardment, the 100-hour land battle dubbed Desert Storm routed Iraq's million-man army. Despite unprecedented popularity from this military and diplomatic triumph, Bush was unable to withstand a discontent at home from a faltering economy, rising violence in inner cities, and continued high-deficit spending. In 1992, he lost his bid for re-election to Democrat William Clinton. George W. Bush passed away on November 30th, 2018, at the age of 94. And I know since you've prob since his passing, you've probably seen a lot of tributes out there. You've seen a lot of people on Facebook and Twitter wish their kindest regards to him and um, their prayers and thoughts to his family in this uh, rough time for them. And since this come out, uh, some of the things that have come up is that history is, is it being too kind to George H.W. Bush? Um, this is an article from Politico um, by David Greenberg. The 41st president puts self-interest over principle time and time again. George H.W. Bush's diet and our national media have begun the familiar rituals of presidential passings. Round-the-clock uh, pieties on cable news, fond tributes from associates, the inevitable softening of the rough edges... This isn't surprising. There's ancient wisdom in the Latin aphorism De mortuus nil nisi bonum, speak nothing but good of the dead. The urge to uh, prettify a politician's legacy upon his demise is understandable and in some ways reflects our finer selves. Bush's family, friends, and admirers deserve comfort in their grief. But when it comes to president and historical actors of consequence, we also need critical dissent. When writing my first book, Nixon's Shadow, about the president's endlessly protrine image i find myself grateful at that at the end of his at the time of his funeral a whitewash that minimizes constitutional crimes sober serious historians like david halberstam and gary wills stood up to provide corrective reminders had they not done so future readers might have believed that nixon attempted comeback had succeeded when it in fact did not respect for the dead must coexist with respect for the historical record in the case of Bush, this balancing act means acknowledging not only his positive qualities and achievements, as so many news outlets have already copiously done, but also what may have been his defining political hallmark, his cynicism. From his optimistic criticism of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, to his 1980 election season embrace of supply-side economics and anti-abortion politics, to his last act as president pardoning many of the Iran-Contra crew in order to protect himself, there was a recurring tendency to place short-term gain above long-standing values. This isn't to say Bush lacked principles. As a young man, he volunteered to fight in World War II, and as an old man, he 
undertook important post-presidential disaster relief efforts. These and other acts showed courage and class. At times in working with Democrats on clean air legislation, the Americans with Disabilities Act in the 1990 deal to tame the debilitating Reagan-era budget deficits, he acted humanely and even nobly. But in this historian's reckoning, self-interest prevailed too often over principle. My friend, the historian Tim Nafatli, has called Bush the most underrated president of our times. I would say that what we're now seeing proves the opposite. Bush was the most overrated president since Dwight Eisenhower and possibly of all time. The son of Prescott Bush, a wealthy investment banker and moderate Republican senator from Connecticut, George W. Bush entered politics at a moment when the GOP's center of ideological gravity was beginning to move rightward. His career bore the marks of his struggle to square his patrimony on social liberalism and responsible statemanship with the new demand from Republican voters for a more zealous and populistic conservatism. By launching his career not in New England, but in his adopted city of Texas, where he had moved to make his fortune in oil, Bush would find himself continually pressed to sacrifice his Yankee principles of noblesse Obliged in social moderation. Most famously, he did this in 1964 when running for Senate amid the great civil rights struggle. Regarded by many Texas conservatives as an Eastern carpetbagger, Bush denounced the historic 1964 Civil Rights Act that outlawed radical discrimination in schools, employment, and public accommodations. At other times, as with his congressional vote in 1968 for a fair housing bill, he incurred his constituents' wrath. Too often, though, the former choice, not the latter, served as Bush's template in making decisions. The willingness to put aside convictions for political opportunity resurfaced in 1980, when Bush, after running a surprisingly strong second in the 1980 Republican presidential primaries to Ronald Reagan, recanted his well-known denunciation of supply-side economics as voodoo economics and his long-standing pro-choice politics in order to be chosen as Reagan's running mate. Throughout his career, Bush often said that while he might take the low road in campaigning, he hewed to his ideals while governing. But here he had done the opposite, trumpeting his true views while seeking the nomination, then abandoning them once in office. With Bush's acquiescence to Reagan's more conservative politics, the last hope for restoration of Rockefeller Republicanism perished. Never again would we would the party boast a major national leader who'd defended reproductive rights, or questioned the merits of supply-side economics. During his own bid for the presidency eight years later, Bush remained under parole from the right. To placate his party's diehards that year, he chose a vice president, Indiana Senator Dan Quayle, who was anti-abortion, hawkish, and opposed the new civil rights measure. I've never seen Bush admit this, but I've always thought that the handsome, affable, preppy, and somewhat happy-go-lucky Quayle reminded the elder Bush uh, consciously and unconsciously of his own firstborn son. Quayle's unreadiness for the presidency soon became evident, and much like John McCain's selection of Sarah Palin as running mate two decades later, it was judged to be a short-sighted, irresponsible move. An even more fateful bid to satisfy conservative skeptics that summer was Bush's pledge at the GOP convention, Read my lips, no new taxes. Fighting what Newsweek billed as the wimp factor, Bush felt pressured to demonstrate his Reagan-like machismo with what pundits were calling a Clint Eastwood moment. The ironclad vow not to raise tax rates shored up support from the right, but in times of skyrocketing deficits, it hamstrung the president after he took office. Eventually, in 1990, Democrats who controlled the House and Senate forced Bush to accept some new taxes as a part of a massive budget compromise. The administration called them revenue enhancements. In his re-election campaign in 1992, Bush would announce not the original pledge, but his violation of it as its worst mistake. Many of the... Uh, incominums 
encomiums. I'm just, yeah, I'm struggling today. Published today, dwell on the president's race and magnanimity, but his campaign showed a less attractive side of his personality. Bush's 1988 presidential bid had been widely deemed the ugliest in modern times. Under the tutelage of hardballers Roger Ailes, James Baker, and Lee Atwater, Bush impugned the Americanism of his opponents, Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis, the son of Greek immigrants, and pandered to prejudice in making hay of Dukakis honorable decisions to accept a Massachusetts Supreme Court judgment that deemed mandatory Pledge of Allegiance recitals in public schools to be unconstitutional. What is it about the Pledge of Allegiance that upsets him so much, Bush taunted. Then came the Willie Horton ads that hyped the scare story of an African-American criminal released on furlough from Massachusetts prison and who raped a woman and assaulted her husband, never mind that Reagan, as governor of California, had signed a similar furlough bill. Bush's 1992 campaign against Bill Clinton was almost as um, scurrilous. The sitting president trashed his opponent for protesting the Vietnam War while at graduate school in England and made unwholesome insinuations about Clinton's motives for visiting Moscow while backpacking. Clinton shot back in a debate when Joe McCarthy went around this country attacking people's patriotism. He was wrong, and a senator from Connecticut stood up to him named Prescott Bush. Your father was right to stand up to Joe McCarthy. You were wrong to attack my patriotism. In between, Bush continued to put politics ahead of the national good in many of his appointments. Most notably in 1991, when Thurgood Marshall, the first black Supreme Court justice, announced his retirement, Bush could have honored his legacy by naming a respected African-American judge or legal scholar such as Amalia Kearse or Leon Higginbottom, but he selected a staunch conservative in Clarence Thomas, served up with the implausible assertion that he was the most qualified person for the job. Given that Bush has appointed David Sauter to the court, expecting him to name a more moderate black justice is hardly unreasonable. In foreign policy, Bush has generally been given higher marks, and in some cases fairly so, particularly for the management of European relations at the start of his post-Cold War era. We also made terrible mistakes, which were likewise rooted in cynicism. As Saddam Hussein was preparing to invade Kuwait, Bush sent the Iraqi strongman clear signals through the American ambassador that the United States has no interest in intra-Arab disputes, the exact opposite position of the one he took very shortly thereafter in which he drew a line in the sand. Bush contemporarily built international support for a military campaign against Saddam, but by leaving the dictator in power at the war's end, he fobbed off the problem onto his successors. By 1998, in violation of the ceasefire agreement, Saddam was refusing to let international weapons inspectors carry out their job, making it impossible to know if he would resume a nuclear weapons program. One need not support George W. Bush's rash decision to invade the country to concede that he was addressing a problem that his father had left. In the words of Dick Cheney, a top official is both men's administrations unfinished. As distressing as giving Saddam a new lease on power was Bush's treatment of the Shiite and Kurdish minorities who had suffered under his rule. Early in 1991, Bush had actively encouraged Shiites in Iraq South and Kurds in the North to rise up and depose Saddam. But after the successful expulsion of Saddam's forces from Kuwait, Bush concluded he didn't want to see the country fractured. He declined to provide more than the humanitarian aid, and tens of thousands of both groups were slaughtered and dispossessed. A similar embrace of real politics shaped his tepid response to the Chinese government's massacre of student protesters at Tiananmen Square in 1989. Perhaps the worst act of Bush's career came at the end of his presidency when he pardoned a bevy of Iran-Contra defendants including Casper Weinberg, Robert McFarlane, and Elliot Abrams. To protect himself from further investigations as Vice President Bush had been present at key meetings about the arms for hostages deal that would become the Reagan administration's greatest scandal. 
but he'd never been fully candid about his support for the policy, insisting disingenuously that he had been out of the loop. Late in Bush's presidency, Special Prosecutor Lawrence Walsh had learned of diaries that Bush had kept, which he hoped to introduce as evidence at Weinberg's upcoming trial. Bush's pardons thus shielded himself from any additional investigation. Walsh fumed that the Iran Contra cover-up, which has continued for more than six years, has now been completed. Needless to say, the above litany will, will inevitably come across to some as one-sided. In no way is it meant to gainsay Bush's achievements in office or afterwards or to diminish his attractive personal qualities. It's a note that over many decades, Bush often surrendered to instincts of political self-promotion and self-preservation, including acceding to the demands of an increasingly right-wing conservative movement whose basic tenets he didn't necessarily share. Despite knowing better, George W. Bush often slunk aside to create space in the Republican Party for right-wing ideologues and practitioners of the politics of personal destruction. It shouldn't surprise us to see that others made a far more malignant stuff than he have now taken over that space. So like I said, there's always two sides to kind of every story of someone's life and that everyone can look at someone's legacy differently, whether through rose-colored glasses or through a cold cynicism. But I think it's kind of up for you to decide. You can read stories about his life, you can read books about him, you can read the autobiographies, you can read 41 of the Last Republicans like I have, or you can read other historical texts, or just do your own research through the internet. But I think a good way to end this episode would be by letting his son give his eulogy at his father's funeral. So I'm going to throw it to George W. Bush at the funeral for his father at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. just this past week. So thank you guys for listening. Definitely check out the drainthecomments.com for other shows on our network. Check out our Patreon. You know where to find me on the socials, on Facebook. Um, I'll definitely have some more content coming out before the year's end, and then there's going to be some big changes coming in 2019. But with that, I will throw it to the eulogy. Definitely stay tuned next week for another poor entertainment. Distinguished guests, including our presidents and first ladies, government officials, foreign dignitaries, and friends. Jeb, Neil, Marvin, Darrow, and I, and our families, thank you all for being here. I once heard it said of man that the idea is to die young as late as possible. At age 85, a favorite pastime of George H.W. Bush was firing up his boat, the Fidelity, and opening up the three 300-horsepower engines to fly, joyfully fly, across the Atlantic with the Secret Service boats straining to keep up. At age 90, George H.W. Bush parachuted out of an aircraft and landed on the grounds of St. Anne's by the Sea in Kennebunkport, Maine, the church where his mom was married and where he worshiped often. Mother liked to say he chose the location just in case the chute didn't open. <laughs> in his 90s, he took great delight when his closest pal, James A. Baker, 
smuggled a bottle of Grey Goose vodka into his hospital room. Apparently it paired well with the steak Baker had delivered from Morton's. <laughs> to his very last days, Dad's life was instructive. As he aged, he taught us how to grow with dignity, humor, and kindness. And when the good Lord finally called, how to meet him with courage and with the joy of the promise of what lies ahead. One reason Dad knew how to die young is that he almost did it, twice. When he was a teenager, a staph infection nearly took his life. A few years later, he was alone in the Pacific on a life raft, praying that his rescuers would find him before the enemy did. God answered those prayers. It turned out he had other plans for George H.W. Bush. For Dad's part, I think those brushes with death made him cherish the gift of life, and he vowed to live every day to the fullest. Dad was always busy, a man in constant motion, but never too busy to share his love of life with those around him. He taught us to love the outdoors. He loved watching dogs flush a covey. He loved landing the elusive striper. And once confined to a wheelchair, he seemed happiest sitting in his favorite perch on the back porch at Walker's Point, contemplating the majesty of the Atlantic. The horizons he saw were bright and hopeful. He was a genuinely optimistic man, and that optimism guided his children and made each of us believe that anything was possible. He continually broadened his horizons with daring decisions. He was a patriot. After high school, he put college on hold and became a Navy fighter pilot as World War II broke out. Like many of his generation, he never talked about his service until his time as a public figure forced his hand. We learned of the attack on Chichijima, the mission completed, the shootdown. We learned of the death of his crewmates, whom he thought about throughout his entire life and we learned of the rescue. And then another audacious decision. He moved his young family from the comforts of the East Coast to Odessa, Texas. He and mom adjusted to their arid surroundings quickly. He was a tolerant man. After all, he was kind and neighborly to the women with whom he, mom, and I shared a bathroom in our small duplex. Even after he learned their profession, Ladies of the night. <laughs> Dad could relate to people from all walks of life. He was an empathetic man. He valued character over pedigree. And he was no cynic. He looked for the good in each person, and he usually found it. Dad taught us that public service is noble and necessary, that one can serve with integrity and hold true to the important values like faith and family. He strongly believed that it was important to give back to the community and country in which one lived. He recognized that serving others enriched the giver's soul. To us, his was the brightest of a thousand points of light. In victory, he shared credit. When he lost, he shouldered the blame.
He accepted that failure is a part of living a full life, but taught us never to be defined by failure. He showed us how setbacks can strengthen. None of his disappointments could compare with one of life's greatest tragedies, the loss of a young child. Jeb and I were too young to remember the pain and agony he and mom felt when our three-year-old sister died. We only learned later that dad, a man of quiet faith, prayed for her daily. He was sustained by the love of the Almighty and the real and enduring love of her mom. Dad always believed that one day he would hug his precious Robin again. He loved to laugh, especially at himself. He could tease and needle, but never out of malice. He placed great value on a good joke. So I chose Simpson to speak. <laughs> On email, he had a circle of friends with whom he shared or received the latest jokes. His grading system for the quality of the joke was classic George Bush. The rare sevens and eights were considered huge winners, most of them off color. George Bush knew how to be a true and loyal friend. He nurtured and honored many, his many friendships with a generous and giving soul. There exist thousands of handwritten notes encouraging or sympathizing or thanking his friends and acquaintances. He had an enormous capacity to give of himself. Many a person would tell you that dad became a mentor and a father figure in their life. He listened and he consoled. He was their friend. I think of Don Rhodes, Taylor Blanton, Jim Nance, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and perhaps the unlikeliest of all, the man who defeated him, Bill Clinton. My siblings and I refer to the guys in this group as brothers from other mothers. <laughs> he taught us that a day was not meant to be wasted. He played golf at a legendary pace. I always wonder why he insisted on speed golf. He's a good golfer. Well, here's my conclusion. He played fast so that he could move on to the next event, to enjoy the rest of the day, to expend his enormous energy, to live it all. He was born with just two settings, full throttle, then sleep. <laughs> he taught us what it means to be a wonderful father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. He was firm in his principles and supportive as we began to seek our own ways. He encouraged and comforted, but never steered. We tested his patience. I know I did. But he always responded with the great gift of unconditional love. Last Friday, when I was told he had minutes to live, I called him. The guy answered the phone, said he, I think he can hear you, but he hadn't said anything for most of the day. I said, Dad, I love you and you've been a wonderful father. And the last words he would ever say on earth were, I love you too. To us, he was close to perfect, but not totally perfect. His short game was lousy. 
He wasn't exactly Fred Astaire on the dance floor. The man couldn't stomach vegetables, especially broccoli. And by the way, he passed these genetic defects along to us. Finally, every day of his 73 years of marriage, Dad taught us all what it means to be a great husband. He married his sweetheart. He adored her. He laughed and cried with her. He was dedicated to her totally. In his old age, Dad enjoyed watching police show reruns. The volume on high. All the while holding Mom's hand. After Mom died, Dad was strong, but all he really wanted to do was hold Mom's hand again. Of course, Dad taught me another special lesson. He showed me what it means to be a president who serves with integrity, leads with courage, and acts with love in his heart for the citizens of our country. When the history books are written, they will say that George H.W. Bush was a great president of the United States, a diplomat of unmatched skill, a commander-in-chief of formidable accomplishment, and a gentleman who executed the duties of his office with dignity and honor. In his inaugural address, the 41st President of the United States said this, we cannot hope only to leave our children a bigger car, a bigger bank account. We must hope to give them a sense of what it means to be a loyal friend, a loving parent, a citizen who leaves his home, his neighborhood, and town better than he found it. What do we want the men and women who work with us to say when we are no longer there? That we were more driven to succeed than anyone around us? Or that we stopped to ask if a sick child had gotten better and stayed a moment there to trade a word of friendship? Well, Dad, we're going to remember you for exactly that and much more. And we're going to miss you. Your decency, sincerity, and kind soul will stay with us forever. So through our tears, let us know the blessings of knowing and loving you, a great and noble man, the best father a son or daughter could have. And in our grief, let us smile knowing that Dad is hugging Robin and holding Mom's hand again.